General Motors is preparing itself for the coming decade, where there will be massive change from autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, and connected and shared cars. Dan Amen, the president of General Motors, explains the company's strategy and outlook for the future. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today, the topic is going to be all about General Motors and what it's doing. Boy, what a brave new world that company is sailing into. And we've got the president of General Motors, Dan Ammon, joining us for this discussion. And Dan, great to have you back on Great the show. to be here. Also joining us today are Joe White. He's the global automotive editor for Reuters. And Joanne Muller is the senior editor for Autos for Forbes. And great to have the both of you here today, to too. Well, let's get into it, because we're going to run out of time before we run out of things to talk about. But, Dan, I wanted you to talk about this new phase that I'm perceiving the auto industry is going into. Steely-eyed, cold, hard-nosed business decisions. It seems that sentimentality doesn't play any role whatsoever in this business anymore. Am I perceiving this right, that we've entered a new phase? I'd say from uh, from our perspective, there's there's a couple things going on. One is... We are making uh, a lot of decisions about how to run the business better for today, and you've seen a number of those. I'm sure we'll talk about some of them uh, in our discussion here. But we've got scarce resources, we've got a lot of opportunities, and one of the most important decisions we make as a team is how do we allocate those resources to the given opportunities. And you've seen us be much more pointed and decisive about things we're going to do and things we're not going to do. And what that's allowed us to do is to drive much better business results in the business today. So month in, month out, quarter in, quarter out, we're driving much stronger current performance in the business. That is then enabling us to do uh, something uh, equally important, which is to allocate a lot of resources to redefining the future of our business as well. So we talk about it internally as a, sort of an ambidextrous thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to generate, and we are generating, great results today in the business, and that's allowing us to also make uh, important allocations of resources to the future and do both those things at the same time. Dan, you've made some, you have made some really tough decisions that, that were avoided in the past, um, and it seems like you have a few more left. Um, and one of them is what to do about North American passenger car. And your, two of your relevant competitors essentially exited or have or will exit that market. Um, as far as I know, you have not, although I guess you, the company's indicated that you're going to spend less or invest less in North American passenger car. I mean, what do you think the future is for GM in North American passenger car? And if you're going to stay in segments like compact cars um, or, uh, or mid-sized cars with the Malibu, why? So uh, as we look at the, the portfolio of the business, you know, we want to make sure that uh, in every market and every segment that we're allocating resources to that we see a path to a, uh, an attractive long-term return. So that's good business and that's an important part of what we're doing. Um, United States is obviously our home market and it's uh, our most profitable market uh, still uh, globally. Uh, and we want to continue to be in a winning position in this market. To win in this market, we need a broad portfolio of product. Um, and you see us investing uh, across the product portfolio uh, you know, in all the major segments of the market. The passenger car segments continue to be very large segments uh, in the market and very important segments. Uh, we have invested over the last few years in new vehicles and new architectures uh, for those segments. And what that allows us to do is it gives us a great deal of flexibility on how we uh, uh, scale our, our presence in those segments going forward. So we've, 
we've made the investments necessary to have architectures that can carry us way into the future from a regulatory and fuel economy point of view. You know, we've taken hundreds of pounds of mass out of these vehicles and so on. So we're, we're in a really strong position, we think, where we're set up with a ton of flexibility going forward. We will obviously invest prudently in those segments, but you know, we continue to do a lot of volume in those segments. We continue to have a strong presence in those segments. We've got great product in those segments, and we're going to play it forward. And competitive profits and returns? To the company, yeah, we're we're uh, you know obviously some segments are more profitable than others, but uh, you know we see a path to uh, to reasonable return. So, so Dan, one of the things that I think could be dangerous for GM going forward is managing the shift from. Um, uh, ownership to new uh, new business models of mobility, um, access to cars. And uh, you talked about, you know, this ambidextrous nature, but I think it's going to get a lot tougher. And, you know, how do you know that the revenues that you will get from some of these new business models will be able to offset some of the stuff you might be giving up? Can you talk about that dangerous transition? So, um, you know, any time there's a, a potential major disruption uh, in a business, you need to have you know, a, a, a point of view on how that might unfold and, and to your point, sort of how does, how does one part of it change while the other part of it's evolving. Um, just to put it in context, you know, the, the, the sort of traditional business model, if you like, of we call it the owner-driver model, you know, where we're selling a car to someone, we hope they have a great experience and come back and, and buy another one. We see that model continuing in massive scale for a very long period of time. And you know, just sort of one fun fact, if you like, to put that in context, if you take every year in the United States, there's 3.2 trillion vehicle miles traveled, roughly. And so if you, if you define the market opportunity in terms of miles traveled as opposed to in terms of number of cars sold, you know, you'd start with that 3.2 trillion. If you look at some of these new emerging models, so take uh, the rideshare business, so Uber and Lyft, Today, rideshare accounts for less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of total vehicle miles traveled. Hmm. So you could look at that and say, well, 99% is still as it was and, and you know, will continue for, for, you know, for a long time here. That doesn't mean that the change isn't real or that the change isn't happening quickly or that those businesses aren't growing quickly. And they certainly, you know, that, that's certainly you know, where we are focused. But it's, it's important to keep in context that we're, I think, the very, very early stages of a very long transition um, and uh, evolution of, uh, of different business models. But you have to be careful not to get ahead of that, too, though, right? I mean, there's a lot of pressure on the traditional automakers to, you know, invent new things, reinvent themselves, come out with new business models. And, um, and so you're developing them to avoid getting clobbered by these, you know, newcomers. But at the same time, as you say, 99% is still, uh, is still traditional. So I would think that that's a difficult path. Well, it comes back to this, this very difficult thing we're trying to do, this kind of ambidextrous point, which is we're trying to do all of that today on the 99.9% .9 of the opportunity. That's still sort of as it was. But we also, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we are in a position to win and define the 0.1%, the which will grow to a much bigger percentage over time. And what we can't do is fall into the trap of saying, well, it's, it's only 0.1% and you know, we'll just worry about the 99.9. That would be an easy thing right. to do. And, and some, and we some are doing that. Some, some are doing that. We, yeah. we, our view, our perspective is we can't do that, that we need to, to be in a leadership position on both sides of this. And that's, that's the tricky part of what we're trying to do.
Dan, talk a little bit about the opportunities then for this new market. What kind of revenue growth, what kind of profit growth does this offer for General Motors? So um, let me sort of zoom all the way out to our perspective on, on, on the future. We've established uh, a vision for the company uh, where we believe in a future of uh, zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And that's sort of our perspective on where the world wants to go or where we can help shape the world to get to. And so we've laid out this very clear and very ambitious perspective. Um, some of that is built on you know, the fact that over the first 100 years, the automotive industry fundamentally changed people's lives and the way they get around and made transportation much more accessible and reshaped the landscape and all of that. And we think this next iteration of, of, of transportation is going to have a similar kind of magnitude of change. So we, we have this very big picture view of where we think the world should go and how we can get there. We, we believe that a lot of the emerging technologies are big enablers to realize that vision. So think about autonomous vehicles, that'll have a huge positive impact on, uh, on crashes and, and accidents. It'll have a huge positive impact on the cost of transportation and accessibility of transportation and ultimately on managing congestion. We think all autonomous cars will be electric cars and that'll get to the emissions point. So, so there's a whole portfolio of technology that we think can, can come into place to enable this future vision uh, that we've laid out. So we're, you know, by having that very clear perspective, it gives us a sort of a North Star, if you like, on, on what we're aiming at and, and, and the technologies that we think we need to invest in to get to that point. Well, give us some numbers, though, in terms of growth. General Motors is today, what, about a $160 billion corporation? Yes. Something like, could it become a $300 billion corporation? What kind of revenue and profit growth do you see? So if you go back to the, uh, the $3.2 miles traveled, the average cost per mile of those 3.2 trillion miles is about a dollar a mile today. So if you said, if you think thought about your business in, in, in terms of not a unit sold business, but a percentage of vehicle miles traveled business, you all of a sudden are talking about a $3.2 trillion addressable market. So I think that gives you a sense for the potential scope of, of this. I can't draw you the exact line from here to there. Um, but you know, clearly we're dealing with a, a, a segment of the economy that's very, very large. And when you define it in that sense of miles traveled is much bigger than the business we're in today. So let me, let me get you to respond to sort of a, a, the bear case or a bear case on all of that. And just looking at autonomous vehicles. So the, the news about autonomous vehicles in the last several weeks and months has been about, about crashes and, and a fatal accident um, and concerns about regulation. And, um, and the news, there's lots of news about ride services and Uber and Lyft, but one of them is that a lot of cities are discovering that rather than alleviating congestion, they're actually causing congestion because more and more vehicles are running around. Do those one at a time. I mean, on autonomous vehicles, in, GM has talked about putting an autonomous fleet out in service by next year, 2019. Um, as you're watching things evolve and events evolve, are you confident that you can make that? Or is there a concern that regulation or the, the technology not being fully ready uh, for the marketplace will cause you to have to delay that or slow it down and you know, delay the realization of the opportunity you're talking about? Right. So th those are great questions. The, the, we've been very clear about this, and I'll say it again. Safety will be the gating factor for us to make the decision to deploy. So we won't deploy until we believe the technology is safe. 
um, and until we're completely ready. You know, we have a, a timeline that we've laid out on when we expect that could occur, but ultimately safety will be the gating uh, factor for our decision um, to deploy. You referenced what's been in the news in terms of uh, a couple of these, uh, these, these incidents, a couple of tragic incidents. And, um, you know, and, and those are significant, but what hasn't been in the news is the you know, hundred people every day that are losing their lives in regular cars on the roads. And you know, this year it will be something approaching 40,000 people in the United States that lose their lives on our roads. It'll be 1.2 million people globally. And 95% of those accidents per NHTSA are caused by human error. And so if we can make a profound and significant positive impact on that with this technology, then that's something we feel obligated to uh, you know, to get to that point where we can do that. Can I just follow up on that? So th there's there's a lot that lies between full autonomy and you know a, a levels you know level one car mm -hmm. uh, with barely autonomous no autonomy car, um, and I'm wondering how aggressively GM is going to basically fill in in those in those interim in order to, in interim steps in order to to affect the the the, uh, the fatality rates I mean in other words automatic emergency braking um, and more sophisticated vision systems to avoid collisions um, are you going to speed up deployment of those types of technologies not just in the United States but in China and other markets where you operate uh, to go after the numbers that you're talking about in terms of fatalities yeah absolutely uh, we have two relatively separate development paths so the the level four or five fully autonomous technology development path. Um, and then we have the, the more of a continuum of, of technologies that we're deploying you know, along the lines of what you were describing and, and you know, including Super Cruise, which is the first true hands-free driving technology um, uh, that's deployed uh, on the roads today. And so we will continue on both of those paths uh, in parallel, so adding more and more safety content to vehicles. And if you, again, if you sort of step all the way back and, and go back to sort of the 1960s timeframe, and you go from the 1960s to today, the fatality rate per 100 million miles traveled has decreased by 80%. So you know it's gone gone down by 80%. And so and it's been a very steady and uh, and deliberate um, you know, reduction. And that's a that's been a huge achievement. And that's been enabled by vehicle engineering. It's been enabled by technology. It's been enabled by uh, working with, uh, you know, with governments and regulation and all of those things. And so we absolutely are committed to continuing uh, on that path, you know, with, by adding additional feature content and technology to the cars, while at the same time working on this somewhat separate stream of getting to the point of full autonomy, which can make another huge step change. In so, so just one more quick on this. So when do you get um, just automatic emergency braking, which is kind of, a, a, I think, a signature technology in, the, in that in that one of those paths, when do you get to sort of everything you sell has that technology on it? So we have a, a, a rollout plan um, over the next few years that brings that technology uh, across the fleet. It varies a bit by geography, by product line. It's driven by architectural changeovers and things like that. Um, but that is, you know, that's one example of uh, of the kinds of technologies that are that are driving these improvements that we're seeing. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, you're, you're talking about mobility and the investment that you're making in that. Um, and I believe you're spending about a billion now uh, 
in mobility? Is that how much you've said? Your Round numbers, yeah. yeah. Um, Ford has started disclosing its uh, its profit and results, uh, profit and loss in that. And um, I'm wondering when GM will. So we're we effectively are. We've we've as you indicated, we've um, uh, laid out to people how much we're investing in that this year. Um, at this stage, it is investment. Um, you know, it's it's technology development. Um, and then ultimately, you know, as the business model evolves and as, as it becomes a, a more meaningful revenue contributor, then we'll look at uh, providing people additional transparency on that. But we've wanted to be very clear with our owners, with our shareholders, you know, this is the magnitude of the investment. This is why we think um, this is money well spent. This is what we see the opportunity uh, to be. And we've been you know, very forthcoming uh, around that. Uh, we hosted a big uh, investor event last November. Out in San Francisco, we gave people an opportunity to experience uh, uh, the cars and the, you know, the technology development and so on. Um, and so we think it's important to be clear with people what the investment is um, and at the same time to keep delivering the results in the, in the core business as we have been to support this as well. Are you losing money on the same scale as Ford, which was roughly about $300 million well, we're, a quarter? We're, we're investing about a billion this year, so I think it, it would appear that our investment is greater. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Dan, this is an industry that's always been predicated on scale. The car company that can make the most cars can amortize the cost of the investment of making them, and hence its costs are cheaper, they can get better prices from their suppliers. But General Motors is actively reducing its scale. You've pulled out of Europe and a bunch of other markets. How do you balance that uh, pulling out of markets where you're not making money versus this whole scale argument? So um, scale does matter, um, but it matters on a on a um, on a slightly more focused basis than just this general idea of global scale. So if you look at the markets that we are focused on today. Um, you know, our biggest markets of North America, South America, and China. In each one of those markets, we're, we're in the, the Americas, we're market leader, um, number one in both. In China, we're number one or two, depending on the, on the day of the week. Um, but we have leading market shares and leading scale uh, in each of those major markets. Um, the places that we have elected to not invest further, and that's some of the places that we've pulled out from, um, were places where we didn't have significant scale. And if you look at Europe as the example, we were sort of 6 7% market share. Um, we were in sort of the mainstream segment, which was where there was a lot of pressure uh, coming on. Uh, there was significant Europe-specific regulatory change uh, that, was, uh, that was happening. And the strategic conclusion that we reached was that scale mattered in Europe as well. We didn't really have it. And there was an opportunity to create scale with a partner, with PSA in this instance, um, so that some of these investments for regulatory and other uh, other investments you know, could be realized on a you – know, you could get two, three times the scale versus you know, what we were getting locally. So, so scale does matter, but I think it's, it's, it's a bit more nuanced than just sort of massive global scale is the only thing that counts. So you decided to stay in Korea. I know you've been working on that a lot over the last several months, um, and I think the deal is done. Can you – Talk a little bit about why you chose to st- stay in Korea because you were losing plenty of money there. On its face, it looked like a market you would exit. Um, I mean, was it the capacity? Was it the supply base? Talk about that decision. Well, I think our, our, our preference anywhere and our preference in Korea, and we said it from the beginning, was we'd like to be present with a successful, growing, profitable business. That's, our, that's much better than not being there. 
Um, and if you look at what we did in Korea, if you look at the uh, restructuring that we also did in South America, um, you know, our, our first preference is to get to profitability and get to a sustainable growing business. If we, if we don't think there's a path to that, then we'll look at other alternatives. So, so in, in South America, we lowered the break-even point in the business there by 40%. So we took a massive amount of cost and, and out of the business and increased efficiency significantly. And so we're in a position there where in the sort of bottom of the cycle and this biggest you know, uh, recession in a long time down there, we're basically breaking even, making a little bit of money. And then as the business improves, you know, we'll make money through that cycle. So that's a, an example of, of getting a business um, you know, restructured and in a way that it, it is sustainable through all aspects of the cycle. What we've just done in Korea is uh, in some ways similar. We, you know, the cost structure was out of whack with, you know, the, the scale and footprint of the business. We needed to, to, uh, to, to fix that. We sat down with all of our stakeholders and had a very, very candid and open discussion about what needed to happen. And, and everybody needed to bring something to the table if we were going to have a successful and sustainable business. And that was from the beginning our preferred outcome. If we couldn't have got there, we would have had to take other actions, and I think that became clear to the other stakeholders as well. So, so we were very transparent on what we were trying to do. Um, we were able to bring everybody together uh, for what I think is a very clear win-win-win for everyone involved, and uh, we expect to be profitable uh, next year there, and that's a huge change from where we were. No, there's some. The, I'm not sure if it was a creative development banker or some other arm of the government. There were some officials who were doubting that you could be profitable by 2019, but. You sound confident you can be. Yeah. And is that in, in internal Korean market or export or all of the above? The total enterprise profitability. So the the total, if you take the uh, all of the vehicles produced out of that business, regardless of where they're sold, measure it that way, which is really the way to look at it. Let's talk about the regulatory environment. It seems like uh, the federal uh, environment under Trump is heading in one direction and the Republic of California is heading in another. <laughs> Can you talk about how, uh, you know, wh where, what this means for General Motors and, and what your position is on a lot of these uh, regulatory things, particularly emissions and fuel economy, but as well, you know, safety and other things? So very big picture, if you go back to the zero crashes, zero congestion, zero emissions, you know, we, we believe ultimately in a zero emissions future and an all electric future, you know, and there's, you know, we need to get from here to there, but it's, you know, that's a, that's a perspective that our company has. Um, we also believe that one of the important uh, things that can happen on the path from here to there is to get to one national standard of regulation because that will allow us uh, to, to, to invest once to solve, you know, for one set of regulation um, and to, frankly, make more improvement and better improvements on the journey from here to a zero emission future. And so that, that getting to an aligned single national standard, we think, is, is very important and a big enabler for, you know, getting everybody where, where they want to go. But that doesn't seem very likely to happen at the, with the current rhetoric. You know, we'll see. We'll see. Do you, I, I've always thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, General Motors is a global company. You have to sell vehicles around the world. Um, even if the U.S. pulls back on some of its regulatory pressures, you want to uh, invest so that you can meet the regulations in other places, whether it's California or China or wherever. So you're sort of destined to have to keep going anyways on this path toward 
um, more efficient vehicles, even if the U.S. says, no, nah, you don't have to rush so hard? Well, I think it's, and it's more than just regulation. It's what are our customers expecting of us, right? What is, what is society expecting of us as, as a company? And, and that's why we felt this sort of zero, zero, zero view of the world is an important thing to lay out because it gives a perspective on, on where, where we think the world should be going ultimately. Um, and then the question becomes, as I mentioned, how do we, you know, what's, what's the most effective way to get from here to there? Um, you know, having more consistency and regulation is always better. We're in a, in a heavy investment long cycle business and having not just, you know, uh, more consistent regulations, but a more stable regulatory environment is really important. If the rules keep changing along the way and we're trying to make, you know, multi, multi-year investments, that's a really difficult thing to manage. So we'd rather get to a point where there's, there's one set of rules, there's stability in those rules, and then we can, you know, plan all of our technology investment and roll out according to that. Speaking of unstable environments, let's talk about trade. Um, it's really the same question that Joanne was asking, but it's about trade. I mean, I mean, the environment that you're looking at, both in terms of U.S. policy toward China and U.S. policy uh, around NAFTA, um, where do you see those shaking out? And are, are you at a point where the, the current instability is troublesome? I'd say in some ways, as you said, it's a it's, a, it's very analogous between the two, right? Stability and predictability on things that impact what we invest in and sort of when we invest in them and how long we're investing in them for. So trade has a similar impact on that as regulation, right? If, if, we, if we know what the rules are and we believe the stability in those rules, we can invest accordingly. It's when there is instability in those rules that it, that it becomes much more problematic for us. So again, what we would like to see is predictability, would like to see fairness in trade, um, and, and in general, you know, flexibility is good. Um, but we would like to get to the point where, again, it's, relative, you know, it's stable and we can make our long cycle investments. You know, when we invest in a new architecture for something, we expect that now to run for some, anywhere between 12 and 15 years. 12 and 15. 12, yeah. Um, and the, all of the investments we've been making uh, on the vehicles launched recently and, uh, and the ones that will launch in the next couple of years have been made where the, the architectures of those cars have been engineered with a view to carrying us that far into the future from a regulatory point of view. And you've seen, I think, the, the huge amount of mass that we've taken out, for example, out of all of these vehicles, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And that sets us up to, you know, to continue on that whole glide path. Um, so we want to make sure there's the right level of stability and predictability, whether it's trade or regulation, so that when we make these big investments for the long term, we know that we can utilize them as far as we, as we believe we need to. And with that, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up. Dan Ammon, thanks so much for coming on the show. Very interesting conversation. Thanks so much. Joe White, Joanne Muller, thank you too as well. And of course, I want to thank all of you for having tuned in.